Hi, everyone. This is Jose with the Criminology Academy. If you aren't already, make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at the Crim Academy. After listening, please let us know what you think by leaving us a review wherever available. Hi everyone, I'm Jose Sanchez. And I'm Jen Tosleeve. We are the hosts of the Criminology Academy podcast where we are criminally academic. Today we have Professor Andrea Montes on the podcast to talk with us about the privatization of prisons. Andrea Montes received her PhD from Florida State University and is currently an assistant professor at Arizona State University School of Criminology and Criminal Justice and the associate director for the Center of Public Criminology. Her work has appeared in several, several journals, including Justice Quarterly, Crime and Delinquency, Criminology and Public Policy, and Criminal Justice and Behavior. Much of her work centers on theories of crime and punishment, crime prevention and school safety, and the privatization of corrections. Thank you so much for joining us, Andrea. It's great to have you. Thank you so much. And I know y'all are editing, editing this, so I'm going to just say this now. I'm no longer the associate director of, okay. of the center. Um, I forgot that that was in there, um, but uh, I ended that position a, about a month or six weeks ago. Um, okay. Fairly recent, though. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, we'll take care of that. <laughs> um, okay, so a brief overview of what this episode is going to look like. Um, first, we're going to talk generally about the privatization of corrections. Um, then we're going to discuss an article um, that was authored by Andrea. And finally, we're going to touch on the conditions of confinement um, and some of a little more recent work uh, that Andrea has done in that work um, or in that area. So we're going to kick off in very typical uh, Criminology Academy fashion and ask a broad question that's probably broader than it should be but that's how we roll here and can you give us some historical context on the privatization of the prison system basically when did we start seeing it creep up and start sort of gaining popularity sure yeah so um you know, we have a pretty long history in our country of privatization and privatized corrections, um, really tracing back to before we you know, had our independence. But if we think about private prisons, private confinement, I mean, you can go into the 1800s. San Quentin Prison, for example, opened as a private facility operated by local business people. Um, when we think about private prisons, how we know them in their contemporary sense, um, that really started in like the 1980s or so, as we saw sentencing laws change, more people were being confined, being sentenced to prison. Um, we saw private businesses um, sort of enter the market of prisons and it sort of uh, really um, increased in their presence and in their, uh, in how the public, uh, the public being aware of privatization and the role of private um, industry in the operation of prisons. So it's really in the 1980s. And then 
Um, we see it now. We obviously talk a lot about it now in the public forum. We hear it frequently in um, debates uh, among people running for office up to, you know, up to the highest office of president of the United States. So um, people are much more aware of it now. And it's I think right now it's about eight percent of our state and federal prison population is um, is privatized or people that are housed in a privately operated facility. So if this came about in like the 1980s, was it primarily due to the increase then in the prison population and just needing more facilities? I think that was part of it. I don't think okay. that there's sort of one thing um, yeah. necessarily that you can point to, but certainly the, uh, the need for more facilities, um, public prisons were severely overcrowded in many jurisdictions and public uh, entities couldn't necessarily build prisons fast enough. Um, So private uh, industry people sort of entered the market and say, well, we can do that. Um, And um, started bidding for some of these uh, to operate some of these facilities. So certainly that was one thing. Um, But some of the things you can look at a lot of the complaints that were around at that time also Mm -hmm. about public prisons and conditions of confinement. And so I think people were also looking for an alternative. public sentiment was in favor of that at the time. There may be other times in history where that might not have. So there were several things that sort of happened around the same time that allowed for for private prisons to enter the market. And so what are some of the key differences then between a state-run facility and a private prison, thinking more today? Yeah, so I think when people think about public and private prisons, what they're thinking about really is who's operating it. So is the war, are the warden and the correctional officers employed by a private company or are they um, employed by a government jurisdiction? Um, in reality, it's a lot more than that. Um, there are, there's really, I think, a spectrum of privatization. So a lot of publicly run prisons and thinking about publicly run being the correctional officers and warden are employed by a government agency. Um, They might have private health care, private food services, uh, private substance abuse treatment. Um, And the same with a a privately operated prison. They might have privately employed correctional officers and um, warden, but they might have um, a public uh, employee who's there as a monitor on site and is involved in some decision making. They might have publicly run um, education services. So there's really is this spectrum of privatization. Um, But when we think about it, when the public thinks about it, it's who's that operator. And quite frankly, when we think about it in terms of research and how we sort of um, say what's a private prison and what's a public prison, we are thinking also about those operators. Did you have something else to ask? No. No. Okay. Um, Can you talk to us a little bit about some of the controversies that surround private prisons? Uh, It seems to not be as prevalent in the news right now, but there are moments where it seems like something happens and there's like backlash against privatization. Um, So can you tell us a little bit more about that? I think the debates about privatization sort of fall under two umbrellas. And one umbrella is um, beliefs about whether private, whether prison, you know, the administration of prison or punishment should be privatized. 
Um, and those typically center around the for-profit nature of prisons um, should profit be made off of the punishment of individuals. So there are these um, ethical and ideological differences. Um, sort of on one side, you have folks who believe it's the uh, legal obligation of the government to administer punishment and the private industry shouldn't be involved with that. And that especially um, in a for-profit industries who have sort of a motive to um, make sure people return um, would be the argument. Um, on the other side, you have people who argue that it's actually, it's unethical to um, not consider this alternative that might save taxpayer dollars if they can provide a, a comparable service. Um, so you have this sort of ideological, ethical um, debate. I think the other umbrella is about the quality of service um, and, the, and the outcomes. So can questions about can private industry really provide a service that's, um, and by service, I mean with supervision, treating people humanely, um, achieving outcomes that we're interested in, like, um, you know, recidivism is the one we talk about most, but, you know, and, you know, ideally we'd also be considering all sorts of other things like, um, employment, housing security, family reunification, and, you know, on and on other outcomes that we're interested in. Um, but can they really do these things in the same level of quality and achieve these same outcomes that public can? Um, so I think it's, those are sort of the debates people have. Um, this, you know, as far as research goes, the research really falls under that second umbrella, comparisons of things like recidivism, um, comparisons of things like quality, and then comparison of cost efficiency. Um, I think, yeah, so those are, so those are the two, I think, umbrellas of debates people have about uh, privatization. Um, I think it's really, it's really tough too. I mean, um, one, we still have a lot of questions from a, you know, evidence perspective, um, but it really, people have really strong feelings about the for-profit nature of prisons. Um, and so it's a lot from a policy perspective, I think it's a lot to reconcile, especially in a scenario like this, where there's not necessarily clear evidence about how public and private compare. And there's not necessarily clear evidence. It's not like the alternative to private prisons is public prisons. And we know that there are a lot of issues in how public prisons operate and the outcomes that they achieve as well. So that all of those things make the debate um, really rest on, I think, ideological beliefs in a lot more than it does on scientific um, evidence. Yeah, I was going to say pretty much everyone that I talk to, like in the public, it's all about the, you know, the not or the for profit nature and whether or not that should be part of it. Um, yeah, it's, yeah, and it's really interesting. I think people think about privatization as for profit. Um, but the reality is privatization also includes nonprofit. And so, you know, sometimes yeah. I, I in these conversations with folks and if I'm feeling a little edgy I might ask them well what if the prisons were nonprofit?" and some people squirm a little bit and they're still not so sure about it and some people feel a little bit better about that um but just like for-profit you know and, and thinking more broadly and you know across corrections not just in prisons just like for-profits and nonprofits have issues as for-profits and government entities have issues so do nonprofits. so they're not necessarily excluded from those same concerns we have Right. Yeah. Right. And so, and you kind of talked about this a little bit, uh, but so we feel like most people have heard of uh, privatization when it comes to prisons. Um, but have we seen privatization occur in other areas of correction? Yeah, I 
Honestly, I think that privatization occurs in almost all aspects of corrections. Um, there, there may be a few exclusions. I can't think of any examples, for, you know, in, you know, administering in like death penalty cases or for, for example. Um, but when you think about confinement, jails are private, not just prisons. Um, when you think about community corrections, some jurisdictions have private probation officers. Uh, many of the folks who are on probation or parole are, you know, court assigned to different types of services, whether it's drug treatment or education, jobs. A lot of those are operated by private entities. Um, if we think about youth, juvenile confinement facilities um, are private in many jurisdictions. Um, so, yeah, so privatization really exists across almost all aspects of, um, of corrections. Um, enough many acts aspects of criminal justice more broadly. The one that always sort of blows my mind and sort of blows people's mind, I think the most when I bring it up, is some jurisdictions have private public defenders. So the public defender is actually a private, uh, you know, a contracted attorney. Um, you know, and then you could go into the conversation about fees. Some of those are not actually free. There, you know, there are fees associated with that. Um, private fine collection, that's sort of the topic that got me into privatization to start with. So yeah, so privatization really exists across um, almost all aspects of corrections. And so and, and long before prisons were privatized, or privatized in the way that we think about them contemporarily. I don't know if you'll have an answer to this. But just thinking about that question, I feel like pretty much every conversation I always hear about when it comes to privatization centers around prisons. Do you know why people don't really talk about these other aspects or am I just like out of the loop and they are talking about it and I just don't know? No, I, no, I, I don't think you're out of the loop. I don't think one, I don't know that people know necessarily. Okay. Um, even I did a, a study where I interviewed um, several people who worked in corrections, some in public and some in private. Um, a lot of them not around prisons. And I would ask them, you know, one of the first questions I asked them is, what do you think about when you think about private corrections? And almost all of them would say prisons, even though they might work in some other area of the field. So even, you know, okay. it's very prevalent. Um, that sort of thinking is very prevalent. I, I don't know. I speculate that one of the reasons is because prisons, you can see them, like, right? There's like a, a yeah. facility people are familiar. You drive down the highway, you see signs about, you know, a, a prison um it's a little bit harder to see like probation right. um it's a little bit harder to see those sorts of things um i also think just like the severity of a prison sentence um in our you know the last you know few decades the conversation about mass incarceration has brought a lot of attention to prisons um and so it feels more severe so people are, are caught up on that more um or know about that more um and um and I, yeah, and I think the severity of it, people just thinking about prisons, people yeah. think about, and, and the for-profit nature, you know, a lot of the um, organizations that are doing like private drug treatment, for example, people feel differently about that because it feels like a service that you're, or assistance or help or support, um, whereas prisons feel just really as a punishment. And so people think about that differently. Um, so one, I think people maybe not, don't necessarily know, but I also think just like the feelings around prison um, mm -hmm. are different than some of the other correctional punishments. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, okay, so talking as we're talking to you, someone who does research in this area, um, I know working in corrections, it's difficult to get access to prisons in general. 
how difficult is it to conduct research on private prisons? Yeah, it's really complicated. Yeah. Um, one, I, you know, there's, there's not a whole lot of cases of someone being, you know, sort of inside a private prison and, and um, conducting research in that way. There's, you know, one of the most prominent examples I can have about a, like sort of a case study, if you will, is uh, Shane Bauer's work. And he was a journalist who actually sort of went undercover as a correctional mm-hmm. officer at a private facility. Um, what we see mostly in the research is people who have administrative data and they're sort of able to pinpoint people who have spent time um, housed in a private facility. Um, it's still at that point really complicated because um, people move prisons. Um, people don't aren't assigned to one prison at the beginning of their sentence and then they just stay there. And so um, if you're comparing recidivism, for example, and people spent some time in a public prison or some time in a private prison, you sort of have to figure out a way to pinpoint the cause of that you know, recidivism event. Um, and there's not necessarily a good way to do that, um, or we haven't come up with a great way to do it. And, um, so that makes it really complicated. Um, and even when we can pinpoint that, we don't necessarily know all the things that happen in public or all the things that happen in their private experience. Um, I don't know if we'll ever truly be able to identify like the privatization effect, um, uh, without, with the transfer, just pointing the transfer. There are other, uh, you know, there are other things that make it complicated, but the fact that people move prisons so frequently um, make it really complicated. And I don't really know how you move past that to identify sort of yeah. the, the privatization effect. Yeah, I hadn't even thought about the transfer aspect, um, let alone just trying to get access to a private prison. Yeah. 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 That, that, that's the other thing. So I, I can't ever get past the transfers when I'm thinking about it. Yeah. Um, and then and the administrative data um, does have there are things that private uh, prisons are required to report back to the Department of Corrections. Um, but there are things they may not be required to. And so mm-hmm. there are, um, you know, one of the criticisms about private prisons is um, lack of transparency. Um, yeah. And so there is sometimes just less known about private prisons because they're not necessarily reporting everything back to the public facility. Um, And and so, yeah, so that's certainly a a second layer that makes it uh, challenging to sort of identify that privatization effect. So we've talked a little bit about like the controversies that surround private prisons, um, but given that, how prevalent are they still? has it, how have they changed um, over time? Uh, yeah, in um, sort of the last Bureau of Justice Statistics reporting um, showed that there were about 8% of people in state and federal um, facilities were housed in private facilities. So, and it's sort of the last few years have sort of hovered around that a little bit more, a little bit less. So the 8% was actually a slight decrease from the prior year. Um, but it's sort of been around that. But you see a lot more when you focus in on different jurisdictions. That way, you, that's where you start seeing variation. Um, so California, for example, has no no one in California is housed in a private facility. Um, if you look at other states like New Mexico, which is where I grew up, um, they house almost half. I think it's like 45 percent or something like that. Almost half of their population is housed in a private facility. So you see a lot more variation and prevalence, um, you know, jurisdiction by jurisdiction. Yeah. And then I was was also thinking um, because I've seen where some states don't have any private prisons, 
but they'll send people out to a private prison in another state. Um, so, so they're just kind of, and so I, I, I feel like that was the case here in Colorado and it's in for like a while. They're like, yeah, we're getting rid of private prisons because, you know, they're bad. People shouldn't be profiting. But then they were just sending people to Utah um, right. to use their private prison. Yeah. So that that's another layer of complication in figuring out like who's in public and private. Um, and then from a public policy perspective, what does it mean to have someone in a private facility? Um, I think California, for example, did have people at least, you know, a few years ago outside of California in a private facility, but they've since, I think this number, this zero number does represent not having anyone on, you know, in who's been sentenced, you know, in California in a private facility anywhere. Um, there's also the layer of some people actually contract with local jails to house part of their prison population. And so, you know, local jails, might, might be operated locally by a sheriff's department or something, but also they can be operated privately. Um, so if, you know, Colorado sends, has a contract with a local jail to house um, individuals, is that considered private or not? It's still a contracted, you know, relationship. Um, so that's another layer, sort of a complication that way. Or if Colorado contracts with another state, is that considered a... Uh, a private, you know, relationship. And so there are a lot of layers, I think, to figuring out what exactly do we mean by private. And my guess is, um, you know, if we polled people, and you know, people would have different views of what, you know, what's considered private. Tricky topic here. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it was tricky, but I didn't realize just how many like layers there were to this. Um, all right, so let's move then into our second part of the episode, which is your article. It was authored by our guest, Andrea, and her colleagues, Dan Mears and Josh Cochran. It's called The Privatization Debate, a Conceptual Framework for Improving Public and Private Corrections. It, it was published in the Journal of Contemporary Criminal Justice in 2016. To provide a little bit of a summary here, um, in this article, Andrea and her co-authors wanted to establish the relevance of privatized corrections while simultaneously highlighting the research in this area that was lacking. They offered a framework through which research on privatized and public corrections should be studied. The framework consists of seven, seven different dimensions, um, the extent of need, the amount and quality of services, impacts on outcomes both intended and unintended, cost efficiency, development of innovative solutions, impacts on social control, and ethical considerations. Um, in some instances, the dimensions are directly connected to other dimensions. So overlap here. Is that a good summary of your article? Yes. And I, like I told you, this was a while ago, so I'm glad you yeah. reminded me what they were. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm glad we were able to help there. Um, so our first question for you then is just what was the motivation behind writing this article? Um, so I was working, I was in grad school at the time. I was working with Dan Mears and um, we came across a New Yorker article that was about privatized fine collection. Um, and it talked about folks who had these, you know, a court ordered punishment fine of I'm just making up numbers, but $500, let's say. Um, and then the on top of their fine, the court had fees for this and that and the other. And, and suddenly it was, you know, $750. Um, 
well, then, you know, if a person couldn't pay that $750 on their court day, they would have to enter into a payment plan, which had another fee. And it was a privatized fine collection company that was collecting. So that company um, charged interest every month, uh, charged them to be on a payment plan, um, charged late fees, you know, all these sorts of things. And suddenly you found some, you know, people would find themselves having owed, you know, having this $500 fine. And suddenly they're in thousands of dollars. And it's just sort of this cycle of debt. And it was sort of, it was astonishing to us. We, and um, I hadn't really heard of privatized fine collection. I, you know, to your point earlier, I I knew about private prisons, but I didn't know about all these other things. Uh, And I'm reading the story and I was just sort of wondering like, how does this happen a lot? Is this like the three cases that's ever happened or is this happening all over the place? Um, And so I tried to go look for article, you know, journal articles about this topic and there weren't really any. um, And then I looked about privatization broadly. There weren't really any except on private prisons. And so, you know, Dan and I, you know, kept having these conversations. Um, So we, and we were left in this place. Well, there's not there, we felt that there wasn't a lot necessarily in the literature to point us you know, to give us a clarity on, you know, the questions we were having about this article. Um, again, about privatized corrections generally, not just on, on private prisons. So um, so we started sort of writing this article that came out that we ended up um, asking Josh to join. And, the, you know, the three of us came up with this article that, you know, came out in 2016. Um, and again, we were really thinking about, well, what, what are the things we would want to know? What are the things that we think that the sort of scientific evidence um, could benefit from, again, you know, and our thought process was about privatized corrections generally, not necessarily just private prisons. Because at, at the time, there was um, still a lot of questions about private prisons, um, but there was also a lot of, you know, a lot more research, especially relative to other types of corrections. That's interesting that this kind of stems from like fines and privatization of fines. I actually used to work in a county attorney's office in the fines collection department, oh, okay. so it was public, but um, one of the agency type places we had to work with was a private fines collection. And they, if it went to them, it was an automatic 20% addition on top of the fine plus whatever their, you know, other fines were. And so we'd always try and get it back to remove that. Cause like a lot of these people couldn't really pay the fine to begin with. So, yeah. 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 It puts crazy. people in a, um, I, and again, there's not, um, many studies on privatized fine collection. There yeah. are, there's starting to be some by Alexis Harris and other folks um, mm-hmm. focused on fine collection, but um, to know like how prevalent that is, like the, the situation you're describing, how yeah. prevalent is that? You can look at state statutes and see what, um, you know, different jurisdictions have sort of on the books, but it doesn't necessarily shed light on yeah. how frequently those cases happen or how frequently people end up paying, you know, uh, exorbitant more than their you know, original fine was. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we want to start getting into like the dimensions that Jen mentioned uh, when she summarized the paper, and basically, can you discuss those with us? Uh, discuss the framework and how they can serve um, research and policy, uh, specifically talking about privatized corrections. Yeah, so um, partly they stem, you know, so in draw in developing these dimensions and this list list of dimensions, if you will, sort of grew and shortened and grew and shortened multiple times before we sort of settled on these seven dimensions. And they came from 
one, um, the literature, just what did private, what could the privatization literature tell us, you know, that did exist at the time, especially, again, being informed by the private prison literature. Um, what could policy debates about privatization tell us some of the important dimensions were? Um, and then looking at um, frameworks about how do you think about evaluating uh, policies? So those are sort of our thinking about how do we come up with the set of dimensions. Um, so we started off, and this is really, um, I think this one in particular was really informed by thinking about policy evaluation. Um, so what is the extent of need? Like, how do we even know that there's a need for privatization? Um, so your question earlier, like, how did this really come about? Um, clearly, p jurisdictions have privatization, privatized fine collection or private prisons or whatever it is. And so they've identified some need for this service. Um, maybe it was, you know, empirically determined or not. Um, but so the first you know, dimension, extent of need, how do we even know if there exists some need for privatization? And, and we really felt like this need wasn't necessarily just pointing to an issue like there's overcrowding, so we need a private prison. Um, but if there is an issue of overcrowding, really considering um, is a private prison the best way to alleviate that overcrowding or what all are our different options? And then does a private prison um, sort of come to the top as the best solution? So it's not just identifying a need and then saying, okay, privatization is the answer, but identifying a need, empirically identifying that a need exists, and then evaluating different possibilities and determining that privatization is the, is the best um, solution. Um, the, the second dimension, um, amount and quality of services, was, you know, quality is important because you want people treated humanely, of course, um, but it, it's also important from a research perspective in terms of, you know, if you're going to say, you know, the, the basic sort of tenet of privatization at its bare bones is we're going to privatize because it can offer a comparable quality of service as can the government and we can do so at a comparable or lower cost. So the implications there are, you know, are quality and cost. And so you have to know quality to make those determinations to know whether it is effective. Um, if, if we're saying, you know, if we're saying quality sort of encompasses impacts like, you know, recidivism or something, you want to know the quality that went into determining um, that, those outcomes. And if you're comparing cost efficiency, it's not really enough to say um, a public prison costs less or more than a private prison. You also want to know what exactly are you getting for those costs? What exactly services are they providing? What exactly are the quality of services? Um, and if you think about, you know, um, let's say a, a treatment, a mental health treatment program, for example, and um, there is a public, you know, the, the treatment program says you should have five sessions um, or one session a week. And the public entity does that and they have a counselor who's fully present going through um, the curriculum of those sessions, how they're supposed to be, and the person is fully engaging with those sessions. And you compare that to a private, and, and we could switch these around, I'm just mm -hmm. saying it this way, you could say public or private in either way, but you have a private and they say, you know, the counselor shows up 15 minutes late, they're checking their phone, the person's really not that interested in being there. And then at the end, you compare public and private and you see different outcomes. Is it really a public and private difference or is it the quality of, of what was happening that's the difference? So, um, so you really want to be able to know what the quality was um, that was that was provided. Um, 
The third dimension went into impacts on outcomes. So how do, how do we know whether public or private achieves better outcomes and not just achieves better outcomes like recidivism, um, which we tend to focus on, but also things like I mentioned earlier, like employment, like steady housing, like family reunification, reduced drug use, better health, you know, we have many, many outcomes that we care about. Um, but also simultaneously, how do we know which one um, does not cause adverse or harmful outcomes? So we don't, you know, we want to know not just about recidivism, but we also want to make sure that it's not causing harm to these other things, like not making it harder or more challenging for them to stay um, tied to their family or to get employment when they're released or, you know, all of these sorts of things. So we want to know also the impacts it has um, on those outcomes. Would those be like the unintended when you separate out? Okay. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, okay. I, some people that are more critical might say intended. Um, yeah. But, yeah. Uh, you know, so it depends, I think, on how you look at it. But yeah, certainly unintended outcomes of um, uh, that can cause harm, not just to the individual, but can cause harm to the, you know their families or communities, to the correction system generally. Um, and so, you know, and you ideally you would have a comprehensive understanding of mm -hmm. all of these things to be able to make these comparisons. Right. Okay. Um, so the fourth dimension goes into cost efficiency. This is sort of where a lot of the conversation lies, both mm -hmm. within the literature and also within policy debates. Um, there's a really strong feelings among some folks that private industry can can operate prisons or provide other correctional services at a lower cost than the public can. Um, and the, the literature, again, focuses on prisons. And I, I think the last um, sort of state of evidence paper was done in 2019. And they, they said there's actually, it's not clear um, whether this evidence you know, supports private or public in terms of cost efficiency. Um, but again, cost efficiency sort of implicates having information about the quality of service that was provided, about the impacts that were achieved, about the adverse outcomes that occurred. Um, which makes it difficult to, to really assess cost efficiency. Um, right. There are also all sorts of, um, of costs that maybe aren't necessarily accounted for. Like um, if a, monitor, you know, a publicly employed monitor is on site at the prison, that's a cost still mm -hmm. that maybe isn't captured if you're just comparing what uh, was sort of spent, if you will, by the private prison company. Okay. Um, the fifth dimension went to innovative solutions. And this really comes from, again, from policy debates. Um, people really arguing the private industry, there's more flexibility, there's less bureaucracy. This allows for more innovation. Um, there's this like belief that this competition for contracts can promote innovation among private industry. Um, there's not really a lot of you know, studies on this. Uh, partly it's because what, you know, what counts as innovation. Um, yeah. And yeah. There's not really a clear, you know, way to operationalize that. Um, yeah. And so how do you really know whether public or private is more innovative? The other challenge is they sort of um, learn from each other, if you will. You might see a private industry do something and then the public, you know, prison sort of adopts that same practice or vice, you know, public do something and the private is adopting that same practice. Um, and they might build on it and change it in different ways. And so there might be this sort of feedback loop in that way. Um, 
but still an important dimension to understand because if the presence of private industry is sort of changing how corrections is done, and if you view those changes as innovative and you know innovative in a good way, um, you would want to be able to capture that somehow. Right. Do you have, considering you just said it's difficult to figure out what exactly innovative is, but are there any examples of maybe what some people have suggested as an innovative solution? Yeah, you know, I can't really think of any... Okay. Um, you know, great examples off the top of my head. What I, what I will say is um, when I've talked to folks in this area, what they point to just generally is the ability for private industries to um, pilot things faster okay. and easier than the public can, you know, public entity can. Um, and in that way, sometimes it's not necessarily that it's fully like the private company's idea um, or sort of brain power behind the idea, but it's the matter. It's just a matter of it being easier in some way, maybe because it is less bureaucracy, maybe because of other reasons, um, you know, it really depends, but it just, there's room to pilot things that maybe then can be scaled into, you know, a prison, um, a, whole, a prison system as a whole. Um, but yeah, I can't think of anything that like, you know, oh, pr private prisons did this and now that's right. sort of the way of doing things everywhere sort of thing. Um, I think it's a little bit, in part, I think it's also more incremental than that. It's a okay. slight, slight tweak or change here and a slight tweak or change there, um, rather than like a whole cloth change of something. Right. Um, the, the next dimension is this impacts on social control. And, and this, again, this is another piece where you hear a lot of um, conversation is um, there's typically arguments about whether privatizing correctional services sort of affects the total amount of formal social control, the total amount of people mm -hmm. under correctional supervision. Um, and this can, uh, you know, the arguments about this are either about their sort of direct impact. Um, so a lot of critics will bring up that private corrections companies um, give money to uh, campaigns for people, mm -hmm. to people running for a different office, and that they may lobby for particular policies or practices. Um, but also there, I think there's this indirect way that it could impact social control. Again, we don't really have a lot of evidence about this, but I, you can sort of see this play out in the sense of, um, does their presence, just their presence, um, uh, the presence of private industry in corrections lead to net widening. So for example, mm -hmm. if, um, if a jurisdiction has a contract and they don't necessarily, does it change the way they sentence people or ch change the way they, um, they administer you know, punishments or what requirements they have of, of folks under correctional supervision? Um, so, you know, in private prison, a lot of private prison contracts have uh, a capacity or a quota uh, agreement, like you, you will mm -hmm. keep a certain percentage of the beds occupied in our prison. So there's concern about how those con contractual requirements change how people are sentenced. Um, not again, not a lot of studies on this. There's starting to be a few. There's uh, there's one um, in the last few years that looked at time served in public and private prisons. Again, it's complicated because of that transfers issue. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and then, and then the last dimension is about ethical considerations. I do think you can get around sort of the ethical questions around privatization. Um, 
you know, again, you know, I sort of said this, so I'll just repeat it here. So critics sort of argue that the profit incentive um, of these private corrections companies can distort motive and can result in um, corrupt practices or poor mm -hmm. service quality or cutting corners. Um, but proponents of private corrections uh, make an uh, argument that if there's a way for the government to um, provide indirectly through private a, a comparable um, service at a lower cost, then they have that, um, then they are sort of required to do that as um, for taxpayers and to save taxpayers dollars. Um, so, so those are the sort of quick overview of the seven dimensions. Yeah. Um, of that conceptual framework. Yeah, I can definitely see how a lot of them would overlap with each other um, and kind of feed off of each other. Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. It's a, it is a little, it can get a little bit murky sometimes, I think, and what exactly yeah. you're, what's exactly maybe differentiates them, but um, it's partly because of, I don't know, the, like, like the ethical considerations, you don't sort of get away from yeah. that. You don't get away from any of these, I think, if you're going to really truly have an understanding of how they um, compare. Right. Yeah. Okay. So after you kind of lay out these um, seven different dimensions, you talk about three different opportunities in your paper. And so we'd like to go through each of them um, and just have you discuss them briefly in more detail. Um, the first one you talk about is using this privatization debate and corrections to advance corrections research generally. Can you elaborate a little bit on what you mean by that? Yeah, so, um, so one is that, you know, private and public um, corrections or private and public, private and public prisons might do things in ways that are a little bit different that lets you compare different strategies or different approaches. There's still going to be some sort of baseline requirements that they have to meet that are, you know, they're legally obligated to do things in certain ways, but there might be different approaches, different management styles, those sorts of things that happen. So you sort of have these two comparison groups um, that allow you to compare different correctional approaches. Um, but also lets you focus on systems-wide decisions. So um, do changes in sentencing, for example, make a jurisdiction more or less likely to privatize? Does the opportunity for privatization or the availability of a private corrections company make a um, jurisdiction more or less likely to look to confinement because there's an opportunity to partner with private rather than considering other alternatives. So it lets you also, I think, consider some systems-wide decisions and how people think and, you know, how systems think about punishment. The, so the second opportunity you touch on, touch on is using the privatization debate to advance criminological theory. In your paper, you state, uh, private industry may well rely on a more diverse set of management strategies than existing public corrections. So can you elaborate on this and how it ties into theory? Yeah, I think that statement is um, was sort of a s speculating some some different ways that it could feed back into uh, into research and into theory. And again, these opportunities are also tied together. Um, so there's not necessarily a theory of private prisons, you know, we have a theory of social control or whatever. There's not a private prison theory um, or a theory about how they operate. Um, but investigating both public and private and uh, 
again, doing it across these sort of comprehensive set of dimensions that we've been discussing, um, I think allows for understanding these different approaches. Are there different approaches to corrections? Are there different approaches to operating a prison? Um, are there different ways that correctional officers, um, correctional administrators make decisions that, let a, that lead to different outcomes and lead to different outcomes for the individuals that are housed there, lead to different outcomes for, um, for communities and for the corruption system and the criminal justice system more broadly. Um, so it's not necessarily that we you know, know different management strategies of private or public prison, but I think studying, you know, the point here was that if we really invest in studying these different approaches, it's an opportunity to learn about different management strategies um, within corrections. Great. And then the third opportunity um, is to use this privatization debate to improve public and private corrections, right? The overarching goal of what we're always trying to do. Um, it appears that you don't necessarily take like an anti-privatization stance, but rather want an evidence-based approach to improve corrections, whether that's public or private. So is that a fair assessment of how you feel about this and how can we go about using research to improve corrections? Yeah, I, I think that's fair. Right? It's, it's, um, I think policy around issues like this are, are tough because people have really strong views personally, um, even if we have um, an understanding of how particular decisions might affect the system or a community or society. Um, so I think at the end of the day, most folks I talk to, if it's their loved one who's incarcerated, they don't care whether the prison is public or private. They want that person to be somewhere that's safe. They want that person to be somewhere where they're treated humanely, whether they can get help if that's if help is if there's a certain kind of help that they need, um, where they can maintain ties with them. You know, they care about the experience of their loved one, um, and they don't care whether it's public or private. They might have views as a system whether it should be public or private. Um, but at the end of the day, those are the things people want. And I think we can use, because public and private do exist, we can use studies of both of them to identify practices that work to try to achieve those outcomes in all of our prisons, whether they're public or private. Because the conversation I think is, me is less about, should we have public prisons or private prisons or both or none or whatever? It's more about, do we, how can we have prisons that are providing a um, supervision that is humane, that are administering punishments in a way that are humane, that are making it less likely that people return to prison, that are, again, achieving all of these outcomes that we've been talking about, that um, are doing, and so again, so less, so I think studying both of these allows us to identify those practices that work and identify the conditions under which they work so that our public prisons can adopt those and our private prisons, if we're gonna have, have them, can adopt those practices as well. Um, so I, that's what I think at the end of the day it's about. It's not necessarily about public or private prisons. Um, certainly we should be talking about whether we should have private prisons because it's, it's, there's a lot of implications to having private industry involved in corrections. Um, but I think the sort of more immediate policy implication for me is how do we have prisons that operate in a way that are humane and achieve the outcomes that we um, aim for them to. Yeah. 
Okay, so I think that actually sets us up pretty well to go into our last section, um, and it's talking more about the conditions of confinement. Uh, you're currently doing some work um, that compares conditions of confinement across public and private prisons, um, and you had a paper that was recently accept, uh, accepted for publication in Crime and Delinquency, I believe. Um, do you, could you tell us the title of it? Um, oh, I knew uh, I if, should have known that you were going to add it. Let's see. Um, it's called Private versus Public Incarceration, Incarcerated Individuals' Experiences and Perceptions of Environmental Quality. Um, and this paper is with uh, Josh Cochran, who was, on, who was also a co-author on the paper that we just talked about, um, and with uh, Claudia Anderson. Great. Um, okay, and so this study uses the National Inmate Survey. Uh, and so to start, can you describe what the National Inmate Survey is? So this survey, um, the, the one that we're using was administered in 2011 and 2012, um, funded by the federal government, and they um, selected a random sample of incarcerated individuals, and these are individuals who are incarcerated in prisons and jails and other types of facilities. And um, they administered a, a broad set of questions. Um, the main impetus of the survey was to comply with the Prison Rape Elimination Act, which requires um, confinement facilities to um, report on and understand instances of sexual assault within the confinement facility. So um, there's a lot of questions in there about sexual victimization. Um, while incarcerated, but there are also a range of other questions. Um, and that's, uh, so we see that range of questions. We looked at several um, outcomes in this particular study. So we see that range um, in this study. Great. So speaking of the outcomes, could you give us like the highlights on this particular study, maybe some of the goals um, of the study, and then, you know, some key highlights on, on the findings? Yeah, so we really wanted to better understand how uh, what happens in a public and private prison. Um, and there's multiple ways to do that. Um, you can use administrative data to look at different things. Um, but what I think the benefit of this particular data set is it really highlights the experiences and views of the folks who are incarcerated. Um, so it really lets us have a, an understanding of how they perceive and experience their environment. Um, and so we focused on several outcomes um, and they sort of fell in line with, um, with a few different domains, if you will. Um, and so it focused on, you know, in, the needs of incarcerated individuals, uh, behaviors they engaged in, victimization experiences, um, and some of their attitudes and um, views about uh, life while incarcerated in a prison. So what are then some of the like main takeaways or implications that we can take from your study? And one of the most interesting things um, we found is, well, one, I think our findings really sort of paralleled what we see in the literature. So what, what we see in the literature is this mix of findings where some studies find the public prisons have a higher quality service. Some jurisdictions find that private prisons have a higher quality service. You know, um, some find no differences. 
And we looked at, I think I'm going to, I might misstate this, but I think it was 20 different dependent variables and um, across almost all of them, we found no difference. And so um, for, we, we looked at men and women differently for women, there were no differences on across any of the dependent variables. Um, and for men, there were almost no differences. We found um, three differences for men. Um, one is that men um, that were in private prisons were more likely than men in public prisons to perceive there to be um, inadequate staffing. Mm -hmm. um, they were also less likely to report maintaining ties with um, people outside of the prison. Um, and sort of on the flip side, men in private prisons were less likely to report crowding to be an issue in their facility. Mm -hmm. So, um, so we found a sort of comparable quality across these two types of facilities, public and private. Um, this is not to say, now we didn't study um, level of quality. So just because there was comparable quality, it's not necessarily saying that they're both of high quality, but we are mm -hmm. studying is relative quality. So, you know, quality of public as compared to private. Um, yeah, I think those are sort of the, sort of the main takeaways. I, I think one of the things to remember here is this is a national survey. So anytime mm -hmm. you aggregate across, um, you are sort of getting an average experience in this case. If we had looked at specific jurisdictions, what we might have found is that some jurisdictions do have more differences or differences that look, um, you know, that are that are not in line necessarily what we found for this you know, national sample. Um, but at least when we look at it nationally, we found a lot of similarities in views and experiences um, with a few, with three differences for men. Was that surprising to you as authors that there weren't very many differences? I, I did expect to see a few more differences, um, but there are, there is a lot in the literature on prisons that this suggests something similar with this, these right. comparable sort of experiences. Um, and I think the other thing that's interesting is, you know, um, wh what would be interesting is a study that looked at um, private prisons when they newly opened as compared to private yeah. prisons later right. on, because for two reasons. One is when a private prison first gets their contract, there might be um, specific things that they're doing at that time that look different than, you know, five and 10 years after a contract. Right. Um, but the other thing is that there's, some, there's one line of thinking really promoted by, um, by, by Harding and some of his work is um, that private prisons and public prisons have what he calls like this cross fertilization, meaning that over time they become more similar because of the intervention of public prisons into how private prisons operate. So a public prison might do something or want to change something and then they go back and amend the contract with the private to make it more similar to how they're operating their public prison. Mm -hmm. um, and so, and that happens more and more over time is the thinking. Um, yeah. So I think, you know, another thing, in addition to looking across jurisdictions where you might see some of those differences would be looking at um, the duration of a contract and being able to compare in that way. Um, so, yeah, but back, back to your original question, I wasn't totally surprised, though I did expect to see yeah. a few more differences um, across the groups. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting.
I, I don't know. I don't know very much about private prisons. So I'm like going off of public discourse primarily here. Um, but I guess I just would have assumed that there would have been more differences. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, the other thing to remember too, is this isn't necessarily looking at um, outcomes in terms of life after, after prison. Right. And so, yeah. um, so if we were to be able to have tracked individuals after they were um, released, we might have, we might see more differences in um, yeah. in those outcomes. Totally. Okay. Well, those are all of the main questions that we had for you today. Is there anything else that you would like to add that maybe we didn't touch on? Um, I, I mean, I think we touched on this, but I think one of the points to remember about privatization is it's not just prisons. We talk a lot about prisons um, in research. Prisons are received vast majority of attention in the privatization literature. Um, but privatization really as a percentage of, you know, how much uh, it is part of the industry, it's much more prevalent in other aspects of corrections. And so there's really a lot of for people interested in studying privatization. I think there's a lot to be learned from studying privatization in other aspects of corrections, community corrections, probation, um, especially as we've see, started to see sort of a a plateauing of um, incarceration rates. You see mm -hmm. a lot of, if you look at the sort of business plans of these four of these private prison companies, they're starting to get more and more into um, community corrections, for example. And so um, there's room to sort of learn what are our best practices um, and what can we do if they are going to be involved in private community corrections, then how can we make sure that those services again, for public and for private are operated in a way that, um, that makes sense. Um, I think the other thing to remember is that the way that we do privatization in um, the United States and especially with private prisons isn't necessarily the only way to do it. Um, so, you know, people think, uh, I think a lot of the public discourse is should we abolish private prisons or not? And it's sort of this um, black and white conversation, but what uh, some of the some other countries have started to do is just change. They keep private prisons, but they've changed how they contract with them. So they um, they might uh, require like a fine of some sort, or they might revoke contracts if they don't achieve certain outcomes or if certain things occur. It's tied to um, the financial incentives. Uh, so there's, there's not a clear evidence about how that has worked out um, or if that's changed outcomes or changed how private prisons or prisons generally have operated. Um, but I just think it's worth noting that there are other ways to do privatization than the way we do them um, in the United States. Uh, and then I, the last thing I always like to point out is, you know, just um, again, this conversation is about private, but it also has a lot of implications for how public corrections and public prisons operate. Um, I think when we argue against private prisons, we're saying that we should use public prisons. I mean, that's sort of the implication, but we know that public prisons also have a lot of issues in how they operate. And so um, I think what the goal really should be is to use, you know, from a, a research perspective and thinking about policy implications is using them to improve prisons, public and private, um, and how they operate. Um, but yeah, I think that's it. I really, this has been a lot of fun. I really appreciate you all uh, having me on here. Yeah, yeah, thank you so much for joining us. Um, is there anything you would like to plug? Anything we should uh, be on the lookout for in the near future? 
sent the paper we just talked about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think the, the paper is the most, you know, the, the crime and delinquency piece, I think, you know, will be out relatively soon. So that's sort of the next thing in this arena that's out for me. Um, yeah, I can't think of anything else, though. Okay. And finally, where can people find you? Are you on the Twitterverse? The I, I do technically have a Twitter, but I uh, rarely check it. I will spontaneously get on and look or post at something. Um, as far as uh, you know, getting in contact with me, probably the best way is just uh, you know shooting me an email. I'm always happy to chat with anyone or set up a Zoom call or a coffee or whatever it is um, and, and have that conversation that way. Okay. Well, thank you again for joining us. We really appreciate it. It was an um, interesting conversation. Um, I learned a lot. Some things started to click as we we're talking about privatization, not just being in prisons and you know some of my work um, with the gang reduction program here in Denver, and they work with like halfway houses. And then I kind of started to remember like, oh yeah, some of them closed because the city didn't renew their contract and they were like private halfway houses. <laughs> Um, so just kind of connecting dots, uh, very informative and it was a yeah. pleasure talking to you. Thank you all very much. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. I feel like I have many more questions now, but that's okay. Another time. <laughs> well, <I'm laughs> thank you. Happy to have a follow-up conversation. Hey, thanks for listening. Don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, or let us know what you think of the episode by leaving us a comment on our website, thecriminologyacademy.com. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at The Crim Academy. That's T-H-E-C-R-I-M-A-C-A-D-E-M-Y. Or email us at thecrimacademy at gmail.com. See you next time. See you next time. time.